one of the remarkable phenomenon of life occurs while we are flying. It appears invariably that the plane in which we fly hardly moves. You, unless you are able to look down on the ground and you might see that the plane is, at least to you, inching forward, you seem to be going nowhere. Sometimes another plane might fly in the opposite direction and that thing looks like it is moving uh, like a bullet going at 600 miles an hour and you realize then that perhaps you're going just as fast as that fellow next to you. But generally, life appears like one who flies. That we're really not moving forward. That we're either standing still, everything seems the same, each year brings with it trials and hardships and problems. Really, nothing seems to be moving. But it's important to realize that perception is not always reality. That indeed, we are moving. In fact, we are moving very quickly. And we are moving to the great day of the Lord. It is this that I want to remind us about as we think among ourselves how we ought to live in 2015. And I want to suggest that we ought to live with the reality that we are headed to the great day of the Lord. It is this day that Malachi the prophet refers to in chapter 4 of this book of Malachi, he says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble, and the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts, we are headed to the day of the Lord. Before I come to reflect, however intuitively, on this passage, we need to put the book in its proper context. First of all, we must say that we do not know a whole deal about the book of Malachi or the, prophets, the prophet Malachi. In fact, some even dispute whether his name was Malachi because the term Malachi simply means my messenger. We do not know precisely when this prophet wrote. But we do have a general understanding of the times in which he lived and ministered. We know, for instance, that Malachi wrote after the rebuilding of the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. 
that he lived during the reign of the Persians, that indeed after Cyrus had permitted the children of Israel to return, they had done so. They had rebuilt the city, they had rebuilt the temple. They had done so in 516 B.C. Sometime after the rebuilding of the temple, the, of course the Persian Empire had spread so that in the 5th century there was peace in the empire. But even in Jerusalem and in, Jude, in Judea where the people of God had returned from exile, there was much that was out of place and needed to be set right. First of all, the people of God were merely going through the motions spiritually. They seemed to lack a heart relationship with God. Some of them were engaged in marriages with pagans in the land. Others were unfaithful to their marriage covenant, their marriage relationship. Others were engaged in social injustice, did not care for the poor. And so Malachi is a series of dialogues between God and his people, a series of the Lord speaking statements and bringing charges against his people in Israel. We notice, for instance, that the book begins with the protestation of love, where God declares his love, I have loved you, says the Lord. And this really sets the tone for the book. God speaks of his covenant love for Israel. But the Lord in chapter 1, also, all the way to chapter 2, verse 9, addresses the priesthood, who seemed to have no reverence for God and were offering up unworthy sacrifices to God. But it is not only the priest that Malachi addressed. He addressed the people of God. These were engaged in divorces and breaking of covenants in chapter 2, 10 to 16. He speaks of their injustice in chapter 2, 17 to chapter 3, verse 5. And in chapter 3, verses 6 to 12, he speaks of the fact that they were robbing God. They were not giving of their tithes and their offerings to God. The final disputation between God and his people in Malachi occurs in chapter 3, verse 13 to 18. And there, the Lord deals with the charge that they had brought against him. They had said to the Lord that really it is useless to serve you. In verse 14, you have said it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinance? And that we have walked as mourners. They were saying, there is no real reason, there is no benefit, no profit in living holy lives, in seeking to please God. In fact, the wicked, they seem to be prospering even though they offend God. And so the Lord responds to this charge that there is no profit, no value in serving him. He points out in these verses that the names of his people will be written in his book of remembrance. That is, that they will always be before him. He says that they will be counted 
as his special possession. And these are some marvelous words that are uttered here. And he says in verse 17, They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And so they charge, it is no, there is no profit in serving God. The Lord responds that indeed that he is his prophet because his people are forever inscribed before him. He remembers them, that they belong to him, and that they will make up his jewels. They will be his segular, his special possession, and that there will be a distinction made between the righteous and the wicked. Now in chapter 4, at least in these first two verses, where we will at least anchor our reflection this evening, the writer shows that the distinction that God will make between the righteous and the wicked is a distinction that will ultimately manifest itself in the great day of the Lord. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, this day of distinction. And first of all, he depicts the day of the Lord as a day of judgment for the wicked. This concept, this motif of the Yom Yahweh, the day of the Lord, is one which is found repeatedly in the Old Testament. It refers to the coming day of judgment when God will deal decisively and finally with the wicked. You see depictions of this, for instance, in the prophecy of Amos and chapter 5, verse 18, where Amos says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord or the day of Yahweh. Why do you seek the day of Yahweh? It is a day of darkness and not light. In chapter 6 of Amos, he continues to speak of this day. This day is one in which men have ease and security, but will eventually lead to evil, to darkness, to trial, to grief. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this day of the Lord. He says in chapter 2, verse 12, for the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. He speaks of this in verse 19 of chapter 2, the day of the Lord. He says, regarding the wicked, they shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of of his majesty when he arrives to shake the earth mightily. This is a serious time of which he speaks. The prophet furthermore refers to this, at least Zephaniah does, this day of the Lord. He gives a startling picture of it. He says in chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, the great day of the Lord is near. It, it is near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation 
a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. And I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Zephaniah pictures this as a day of suffering, a day of anguish, a day of alarm, a day of trouble. And this same idea of the day of the Lord as a day of judgment is carried on in the writings of Ezekiel in chapter 7, for instance, and in chapter 34. It is a day of judgment. It is this day found in the prophets to which Malachi refers. For behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And the first thing he tells us is that the day of the Lord is a certainty. We live in an age where men and women, today at least, do not believe in a day of judgment. It is not a subject that we hear about in much in our preaching and in our reading. The theological reflections of others. We live in a, in a post-biblical age where, where the Bible no longer is sufficient for belief. Men churn out ideas and thoughts from their own minds that have no anchor or basis in the Bible. This notion of a day of reckoning is passé in our age, and yet, yet the writer says, For behold, the day of the Lord is coming. It is a certainty. But secondly, we need to know that where the prophet is concerned, the day of the Lord is not only a day of certainty, it is a day of destruction. And here he writes in keeping with the passages that I have referred to earlier. He says, the day of the Lord is coming, it is certain, burning like an oven. That hardly needs comment. It is a day of destruction, a day of pain, a day of suffering. In it, he says, and all the proud, all the arrogant, yes, all who do wickedly, and so this notion of the proud and those who do wickedly, we believe, form a hendeidis, that is the second description, do, those who do wickedness, rarely explain the proud. The proud are those who do wickedly. I'm not talking about two different categories of people. All of them, he says, that these will be like stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up. They shall be burnt up. This is the day not only of certainty, but a day of destruction. All, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up. Not only is it a day of destruction, it is a day which results in the victory of God over his enemies. Because the text goes on to say that he will leave, that is the Lord of hosts, will leave them neither root nor branch. That they will be completely dealt with. Dem that they will be in fact vanquished completely by the Lord. That God will one day put down all opposition to his rule. 
that God will indeed bring all evil to book and that he will be seen and recognized and worshipped as the sovereign authoritative king of glory. He's the Lord of hosts. Now, it is important to note that at least in the early years of Judaism, many looked to this text and they saw within this a reference to the restoration of Israel and the vanquishing of God's enemies, especially when the Messiah came. But the New Testament picks up this theme of the day of the Lord and uses it not to some period of time when Israel will be restored and the Gentiles will be destroyed, but refers it or, 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 or refers it to the second coming of Christ. You see that, for instance, the day of the Lord is depicted as when Christ will come again. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2, Paul says, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 2 and 3. Perhaps no other writer than the Apostle Peter makes the most elaborate comment on the day of the Lord. He tells us that the day of the Lord, he says, therefore, or he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we according to his promise Look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13. And so the day of the Lord is indeed the coming of the Lord in judgment. But Malachi does something with this concept, with this idea of the day of the Lord. For the day of the Lord is not only the day of divine judgment. He states that the day of the Lord is the day of righteousness and healing. Notice in verse 2, he says, But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. What he's doing here is that he's so showing that the day of the Lord will be one of contrasting fortunes. On one hand, the day of the Lord will be a day of terror for the wicked. They will be burnt up. Completely so. They will be judged by the Lord. But for those who fear the Lord, for those who revere God, the day of the Lord is not a day of darkness and doom, but a day of brightness, a day of happiness, a day of joy, a day of tremendous spiritual blessings. He says, for the son of righteousness shall arise. Now, if you 
have the new King James, and I suspect the same of the old King James. These translate Son of Righteousness, and you see capital S and capital R, and the translators are indicating that this refers to the Lord Jesus. I, I don't necessarily want to dispute that interpretation. It is a venerable uh, interpretation that goes back to the early church fathers, that the, that the, day, that the Son of Righteousness referred to Christ. But contextually, the first meaning of this phrase must be seen within the context of the chapter. We need to understand that the son of righteousness is indeed a metaphor. That there is a contrast here between the day of darkness for the unbeliever and the day of joy and light for the believer. Just as the sun brings warmth and brightness and happiness, so the day of the Lord will arise like the sun. And it will bring with it this great blessing of righteousness. He says, for the sun of righteousness shall arise. The day will come for the believer like the bright shining sun and it will bring righteousness that is they will receive on that day that final statement of being justified in the sight of God we do not suggest that justification has several movements that it is continuous but what we are declaring is that this passage sees the day of the Lord when the children of God are finally vindicated, they are pronounced once and for all eternity as those who are righteous. They have received a righteous status. They are covered in the garment of righteousness. It is a day of great blessing. And this blessing that they receive is from God. It comes from him who declares in chapter 1, I have loved you. It is, it is precisely because they are loved of God that they are given this righteousness. I have loved you, he began in chapter 1 to tell them. It is because he is a great king that is able to give great gifts. As we read in chapter 1 verse 14, he says, I am a great king. It is because he says in chapter 3, verse 6, I am the Lord and I change not. That they will one day stand before him in the garments of righteousness. It is precisely because of what he says in chapter 3, verse 17, they shall be mine when I make up my jewels, that they are now declared righteous. They are God's own. Not only will they receive righteousness, but they will receive healing. They will receive healing. But to you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in its wings. And the wings here refer to the rays of the sun. That this, this day will arise like the sun. It will bring with it righteousness and spiritual healing. These are people who have known suffering. These are people who have known hard times. They, they have known displacement and anguish. 
in turmoil. But on that day, on the day of the Lord, not only will they stand before the Lord as righteous, they will stand before him as those who have been healed, whose sorrow and grief and mourning have been turned into joy. Hearts that have been bruised and rent asunder would be united in joy and praise to the Lord. The day of the Lord is a day of healing. It is a great news. Because there is much pain in our universe. There is much pain in our world personally. When you listen to the stories of the children of God. And the things that they put up with even in the, on the quiet without complaint. You realize that they are much hurt. There is hurt in, in our childhood. Hurt with our co-workers. Hurt in our marriages. Many suffer silently, but the day of the Lord will be a day not only of righteousness, but of healing. For the Lord will take us in his arms, and he will sing over us with joy. He will wipe away our tears and grant us his peace. So you see the contrasting picture, a day of darkness, a day of gloom, a day of judgment. On one hand for the wicked, but for those who fear the Lord, it is a day of righteousness and a day of healing. But it, it moves us then to consider how do we receive this? Granted, we've talked about God who loves them, God who is a great king, God who owns them, and God who does not change. It is important to know that the blessing of this day, that is the righteousness and the healing that they receive, depends upon the messenger of the covenant. I cannot develop here this evening what follows in the rest of the passage, merely that Malachi calls upon his generation to remember the law of Moses, that is, that they are to give obedience to the commandments of God. But he promises here, and the Lord speaking on behalf of the Lord, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet, that is, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, Elijah the prophet will come. Now we know that this reference to Elijah the prophet does not literally mean that Elijah would be raised from the dead and that he would come back and live again in the time of our Lord Jesus Christ or before our Lord Jesus Christ. But rather, he speaks of another character who would arise with Striking similarities with Elijah. And the New Testament identifies that Elijah as John the Baptist. He's the one who bears the same burning zeal for God as Elijah did. The man who preached the same message of repentance as Elijah did. The man who lived in rugged terrains, as Elijah. This, this, this second Elijah will come, and his task will be to, be, be to herald the coming of the messenger of the covenant. In chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, referring to John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger 
of the covenant. In other words, the Lord's promises to send Elijah, that is John the Baptist, before the great day of the Lord. And it is the one whom John the Baptist pointed to that is the messenger of the covenant, Jesus Christ, who enables us to stand on the great day of the Lord in righteousness and to receive healing. That the righteousness in which we will stand on that great day of the Lord is a righteousness that is costly. It is a righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. Indeed, Paul makes that claim in Romans 3 and verse 24, where he uses that little word, dear, through. He explains that God declares sinners righteous. He says that God justified us freely by his grace. Justified means, simply means to declare righteous. God declared us righteous freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth as a propitiation by his blood. The point I'm trying to make is that the righteousness in which we will stand on the great day of the Lord is not our personal righteousness. It is not a fictitious righteousness. It is a righteousness inherited from Christ. A righteousness that we have received from him who was a propitiation for our sins. It is because Jesus Christ earned righteousness in his perfect life and in his sacrificial death. He has given this righteousness to us as a gift and we will stand in it. What, what I'm saying is it is Christ who inaugurates a new covenant, who enters into a new arrangement for us with God who will give us the righteous standing that we will need to be able to stand on that great day of the Lord. It is Christ who will also provide our healing. Peter makes this very clear. He tells us this. See, not only is Christ the Lord our righteousness and our sanctification, he is also our healing. And Peter says this, 1 Peter 2.24, he says, who, referring to Christ, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. The healing we are going to receive, the, the righteousness we are going to receive, every blessing, every spiritual blessing, including righteousness, and healing which Malachi singles out are those that we receive in and through Christ alone. It is Christ who by his blood heals us from our sins, who removes our guilty consciences and enables us to stand before the Lord. My friends, we need to know that it is quite easy to, to think nothing is really happening. There is no real reason to serve the Lord. 
the wicked are prospering. The more we serve God, the more difficult things are. Those of you who have been baptized this morning, you're going to find perhaps even this very week, you're going to wonder, why did I even do this? Because it seems as though hell itself has opened up. The devil has painted a bullseye on your chest and he goes after you. And you think, it's not worth it to serve the Lord. But you need to know that we are moving and we are heading towards home. And our salvation is closer than when we first believed. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. And it might very well be that in 2015, this is the year when the Lord makes his entrance. When men are saying peace and safety, the Lord may appear. And you and I who are Christians are to live every day in the realization that Jesus Christ is coming again. That we must, we must keep very short accounts with God. This is no, no longer a time to joke. You just need to look at the times in which we live. You need to know that these are dangerous times. These are spiritually dangerous times. You know, we, we, we in the West, we are awash with money. I mean, we have toys coming out of our ears. We have everything we need. No, nobody persecutes us. We aren't thrown in prison for believing in Jesus. But the ease in which we live is often more dangerous to our faith than opposition from the world. We need to know that the day of the Lord is coming. And we must be prepared. We must be prepared. And the means by which we are to live is we are to live in the fear of the Lord. We are to live in reverence for him, in obedience to him. As we see the day drawing closer, we are to live in fear of God. We are to do nothing that will displease him. We are to live knowing that he loves us, that he declares, I have loved you. You are to live knowing that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. You are to live knowing that the one who loves you says, I am the Lord and I, I never change. I, I never make a promise and break it. I am the Lord and I am constant in my character. So you are to serve him in fear and in love. You are to know that one day you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. Righteous and healed. Righteous and healed. You are not promised a bed of roses in 2015, I'm sorry to tell you. And things may become even tougher. And you may have to endure a few more blows here and there. But know that true healing is to be found in Jesus. The greatest healing we can ever have is to be healed of our sins. And then when we see him, we shall be healed of the effects of sins. May God grant us that we set our gaze upon Jesus Christ. That we look and long for that great day when we shall see him. May we prepare ourselves this year.
to meet our God. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. My hope is built on Jesus' love.